I called it the Disneyland effect where people would, you know, get in these country roads and get out of their cars, walk up into these families' homes and their gardens and take photos of them. Like it's some Epcot Center show that's going to yeah. end at nine o'clock at night. We, we saw actual well-documented PBS shows that showed Amish families that had not gotten, given consent for their photograph and videos to be taken. So I had this crazy idea of what if we could take this weapon that's been used against them, this camera, and use it as an opportunity for them to show a window into their own world. There's plenty of books and photography books about the Amish, but there's never been a book that's been written and directed directly by the community. So... Rotations is all about allowing interesting people the opportunity to share their opinions and ideas. Some listeners may find the opinions and the content expressed disturbing and or objectionable. Hello, everyone. It's Dr. Todd Fredericks again for the third segment with Melissa Thomas, uh, who is one of our PhD researchers here at Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine. Definitely not the university we're going to beep out in post-production. Uh, and I have Dr. Sarah Atkins, who is a pharmacologist, doctor thing person who knows everything there is about drugs. She is from the university that we're going to beep out. Hi, Sarah. Hello, Dr. Fredericks. <laughs> And her, her graduate student, Minion, who's almost a doctor of pharmacology, Pi. Hi, Pi. Hi. Pi's here. And then Melissa Thomas. So we're going to start this third and last segment. And most importantly, well, the most important thing is what we're about to talk about. But then secondarily, we're going to talk about what it's like to get healthcare delivery in an Amish community. But the thing we're going to talk, we were talking about Stranger Things. We were talking about Disney Channel. We were talking about <laughs> slow TV. Yes. And knitting championships. Yes. And train rides through Norway. Oh, you know, one of the episodes of Slow TV was a was a cruise ship from Oslo clear up to Strong, uh, uh, some some uh, Iowa or someplace north and and the Queen of Norway came out and waved at the ship. She'd been watching TV and came out and decided to wave in real time, and people flipped out. They thought it was the coolest thing. So, what were we talking about? Oh, slowing down. Yes, we talked about the fact that how relaxing it is to watch a bunch of Norwegian women knit, and it's not unlike slowing down for the Amish that their perception of taking life slower mm -hmm. gives them a better quality of life. I agree. Right. We yeah. were discuss discussing that issue of mindfulness and mm -hmm. living in the moment and appreciating what's around you. And I think that- Yeah, what is mindfulness? Because people throw that- We've been talking throughout this series of words that, that certainly a middle-aged, a mid-middle-aged physician has no- Like woke and gaslighting like, and make, all that stuff. Make us so woke on mindfulness. Throw, <laughs> yes, that's right. Because <laughs> So mindfulness gets thrown around. You probably are a good expert on asking, what does that mean, Melissa? What is mindfulness? Uh, for me- and I think my experiences has been, it's about living in the present. It's about being aware of everything that's around you. It's about, um, it's, it's the simplest of things. I mean, some people call it more of a meditative state, but it's, it's being aware of the birds and the trees and the, the wind that's blowing or just the, you know, the playfulness of the children in the yard. I mean, I've had many, many 
many experiences of just sitting out in the yard with Amish families and um, watching them as they get. To, I remember once one one of the bishops, David, was so excited. He's like, "What? You know, we're just sitting there talking," and he's like, "Wait, wait! I have to show you this this hummingbird." Uh, nest. Uh, it's just right there above your head. And it was just being so aware of what's around you in living in the present tense, instead of worrying about what we're seeing in the future and worrying about the past. It's about just being in the moment and appreciating those around you. And I, I think in many ways, Amish families have that, you know, have that really perfected that they are, you know, just as you mentioned how sometimes, you know, the, what do you call it, the drop-ins or the pop-ins? Pop 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 uh, I, did, I didn't know that like term. Mary Poppins. Right. I, I didn't Poppins. Didn't know that just because it's part of my family too. Yeah. It's just people just showed up, you know? I don't think we called it Poppins, but people yeah, did people that. Just, this is not the did. film about the, the Disney film Saving Mr. Banks. Okay. Not Mary <laughs> not Poppins. About Mary this is Poppins. Poppins. Pop but it was, a, but you know, we, I, I think many rural families or maybe not just Amish families had this concept that you know, having someone stop by and announce that was a gift. That was someone to be mm -hmm. there. You know, we talked about rural families having that front porch where it was just about sitting out there and enjoying each other's company. We don't do that. We're worried about the next appointment or the next meeting. So or, or how do you, as a researcher, when you go to these communities, because you are you are a a foreigner in that community, you still yes. have an email account and you still have text messaging. You still have a phone, and you still have you found a way to check that at the door and be able to go get yourself in the community and live that way while you're there and ignore that stuff? Do you yes. have a way of doing that? Well, I think, I think for any practitioner, researcher, I mean, even neighbor, I think there's, there's an understanding of just respecting one another. So I'm not going to walk into a home with my cell phone on and my, you know, my, my Bluetooth in or, yep. you know, be distracted by my phone. What do you do? Just leave it in the car? In the I center leave it console? in the car. Absolutely. Leave yeah. it in the car. Um, I, and there are some situations where I may be expecting a call or something was urgent and I'd let the family know, I hope you don't mind, but my phone's here just in case something might pop up. And, mm -hmm. and that was fine. But I think I think for most human interaction, that's yep. respectful. Mm -hmm. I think one of the most, I had a staff member who worked for me and she just was so excited to get her brand new phone. Her, she had a brand new Fitbit yeah. and it was the most annoying thing in having direct eye contact because she was constantly looking mm -hmm. at it. And I thought, do you need to leave? No, I just got another text. And her <laughs> phone's right here, but she's, you know, oh, she yeah. needs that second reminder. That's and me. and I found that, <laughs> I found that so distracting, right? Like, like you're constantly doing that. So well, you have a smartwatch. I do, but I have the um, I have the notifications turned off. Oh, smart! Uh, yeah, yeah, I only I'm only using yeah, it for the exercise running. So I have a colleague who whose name shall not be mentioned, but this colleague <laughs> is very close to what we're doing right now. Anyway, he has perfected the art of leaving everything at work on Friday. Wow! You cannot get a hold of him, and a weekend you just can't. He, he just refuses to participate. Like work is done, I'm moving on. I think it's a very hard skill to learn. For it's us. a very hard skill. It's important, and, and I—it's so important. And I think it is, it is about. Is, right? I think it's up, important. Yeah, I think it is about setting those boundaries. But for me, it's always. I think the other thing that we've lost an art in today's society, and that is letter writing. Mm -hmm. Writing people um, it takes too much time. It does, and I, I know for me, it's a constant lesson to learn and how valuable it is in writing letters to people. I mean, many of the Amish communities we serve, many of them still do not have telephones. And right. the only way to communicate is by writing. Yeah. And it's a much slower pace, but it really makes one appreciate. I know one of the Amish women who, who's one of our longest volunteers, Ella, who's actually 80 and she's almost a 30 year breast cancer survivor. But mm -hmm. Ella is, lives in a, she's old order Amish. So no, no 
you know, no technology. But she used to say that her father at Christmas time when they would receive Christmas cards and he would open up the card and somebody would just sign it, that her father would say, what a waste of a stamp, you know, that they didn't take the time to write something in or to communicate. And I'm very wary of that. And I think a lot of times in our interactions, we're busy. We're so used to getting into that. And what's so important in these interactions, I think, in not just rural families, but I think cultures that are different from ours, is taking the time to ask, how are you or how's your family? Mm -hmm. And I know I've trained other staff working with me saying, if you don't know what to say, talk about the weather. Mm -hmm. Talk about the weather. It's a common, I know I I I have a meteorology background, but the point is, (laughs) talk about the weather. It's a common thing everybody shares. Absolutely. Look at the day. It's a nice day. Pretty. If you don't know what to say, if you're having trouble engaging in conversation with another community, just ask about, talk about the weather. Um, well, there's this, there's this technique too, um, which people, I I mean, I'm an introvert. I'm an INTJ. mm -hmm. I don't like being around people most of the time. It's very awkward. I like one-on-one things. Mm -hmm. I like individual people because it's hard to focus on groups. It's very uncomfortable in groups. And one of the techniques I've found to get past that is I just start interviewing people. I ask them the who, what, where, why, why, how of their life. And so Mm -hmm. when I'm totally awkward at a party and I don't know what to talk about because I'm going to end up talking about lightsabers or something and no one, (laughs) people eyes glaze over and, you know, I don't like football and nothing, nothing, championships, right. Nothing in my personal life meshes with anything in society, right? Like I like the knitting championships. Okay. By the way, I wanted to show you that the OU hockey team will be playing Illinois uh, here at Bird Arena. January 10th and January 11th. Oh, I'm wow. taking my mom to the Saturday game with Illinois. Yeah. You could go. It could be your first time. 7.30. That is, Puck that drops. is, that is awesome. And you're, you you like sociology. You would love to see the hockey. Oh, no, I would. Awesome. I would. They're from sociology. Bird, Bird Arena. Just go buy yourself I, a ticket and go in. I have a, a great niece who's one-year-old birthday party Saturday. So What? She's, be, she goes to bed at six. I, I You know. could still make the puck drop. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she's a, how old, too? One. She'll she's, be in yeah, bed oh, by six o'clock. You she's, still a, make, she's she's going to have a wild day, I assure you. So <laughs> the, the idea of other-centeredness, it helps introverts. It helps anybody else. Just tell me about you. Tell me what you do. What's your job? I, I Where do you live? What, I mean, this whole thing is dealing with my introversion. I think, I think that's... I agree. I think that's right? a great a great example. And I think that in, in looking at healthcare and getting back to the issue of healthcare. Yeah, we're gonna jump into that. In a I, yeah, I think that one of the one of the it, it's I guess one of the mistakes, I don't want to say mistakes, but one of the, the efforts that we make sometimes is that we do make great assumptions about individuals. Mm-hmm. We make mm-hmm. you know, we see somebody coming in and who's dressed to Amish and so mm-hmm. we, we you know, time is of the essence. So we, we make some certain generalizations or assumptions about this particular group where we know this person's background. And uh, it, we have just found in the course of this project, it's just been a very damaging thing to do. And it's a very damaging thing to deny a patient options or access because we have assumptions about what they believe, think, act, or do. Mm-hmm. And I think your concept of interviewing even just or engaging in conversation with individuals tells a lot about how we can interact with with other communities and especially with the Amish communities. So you're really you're really a pro at this. So you segue right into the beginning of the segment, which was nine minutes ago, but now we're at 10 minutes. So, so which is, <laughs> what do the Amish think about healthcare? What is their view of healthcare? What, what role does it play in their lives? What levels are there? Obviously, you don't know, put a bandaid on someone all the way up to having brain surgery. But I mean, what does that look like for the Amish? How do they view healthcare as a part of their life? Because we, we have this deal in modern American society, we have to have healthcare. And I'm like, you can go into any part of the world and they have healthcare. Some people deliver healthcare to themselves. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by that? 
Do you want right. massive infrastructure full of all these glass buildings and people with corner offices on the 30th floor? Is that what you're talking about? Or are you talking about getting what you need at the time you need out of a pole barn right. or out of a hut in an African village? I agree. And, and So tell me about that with the Amish. Well, and I think it goes back to the question of what, how we interpret what health means and mm -hmm. what good health means. I know a um, a young woman, actually a Mennonite woman from Canada, had conducted a study several years ago and had contacted me. And unfortunately, she didn't publish her work. She was getting a master's degree. But she had asked a group of old order Mennonite uh, community members in Canada, asked what it meant for them to be healthy. Hmm. And often in society, I think mainstream society, we view health in how we feel, right? Mm -hmm. I don't feel well. I'm not healthy. But in, in her research, she found that many of the communities interpreted health as not how they felt, but whether or not they could provide for their family. So if you ask them if you were healthy, the answer could be yes, even though they may have chronic back pain or have other persistent health issues. But if they could still go out in the field or care for their children, if they were asked by a healthcare provider, are you healthy? Are you well? They would say that they were. And so sometimes that whole construct of how we view health is very important in how we're communicating to our patients, to, to, to family members, even how we interpret pain or how we interpret different health management. So I would say that you know, again, incredible diversity of Amish and Mennonite communities, but I know we've had individuals often ask us, wow, if you find someone who's been diagnosed with breast cancer, do they accept treatment? Do they do they follow through? And I would say that over 20-some years, for the most part, uh, and probably 98.9% .9 of the cases, women did follow through with a recommended course of treatment wow. for care. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that we have a patient navigation model with an Amish or Mennonite woman who's trained to interact with that community member. This is in Holmes County? Oh, any part of the state. Any any, any area oh. that we have screenings, we have um, you know trained Amish and Mennonite women who play that role of that patient navigator, whether it's helping that person go to the hospital or just following up with a conversation about what they're needs or issues are. Um, I think I think that for many Amish community members, it's been our experience. They're a very, they're a very passive community. Um, they're not known often to be very assertive. So I know for the first maybe 10 years of our project, I really thought I, I had this figured out. You know, mm. I'd done this work enough and that every the Amish seemed so pleased at our clinics. We would ask them, everything was going well. Everything was fine. They were so grateful for everything mm -hmm. we were doing in the community. Yeah. And then we brought in our first Mennonite community health worker who followed up with women after screenings, after clinics, and we found we were doing many things wrong. Mm -hmm. That the women were upset about certain aspects of, you know, certain healthcare providers or certain individuals at healthcare systems with whom we worked that they had problems, that there were issues or concerns. We had no idea. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes in communities that have to maybe are more quiet mm -hmm. or less um, or more maybe reticent to be more assertive. Um, or even aggressive in some mm -hmm. terminology, you may ask them directly, are you okay? Is everything all right? Do you have any questions? And their answer may be, no, I'm fine. I think there's often too, again, anecdotally, my experience growing up in rural Appalachia, Ohio, there's such a, a disconnect between, um, there's such a wide chasm uh, between the community member and healthcare providers. Mm -hmm. Doctors, are viewed as such experienced intellectual people. Mm -hmm. And I've often heard of my own family. I'm like, why don't you ask those questions? Your doctor wants you to ask questions. But often I hear people say, well, they're so much smarter than I am and I don't want to bother them. Mm -hmm. If they want me to know something, they'll tell me. Oh, man. And I can only imagine how often you're, you're told that. There's a group of people that are impressed by trappings. They're impressed by a white coat and tie, even though we know they'll spread infection in hospitals. Mm -hmm. They still use it because it's their branding. Right. There's another group of people that use those facilities 
that's, that scares the bejesus out of them. And the way they much rather have is a physician that comes in and just says, yeah, I'm wearing my SpongeBob t-shirt because I like it. And um, I'm going to go get some ice cream this afternoon. How are you been doing, Joe? Mm -hmm. exactly. And Joe goes, well, doc, you know, I'm a little concerned because my wife's sick. It's a completely different conversation that happens. It is. And I can only imagine the Amish. And my question is, Melissa, do those patient navigators, you identify an Amish woman that has breast cancer and she needs to go to the clinic. Yes. Does the navigator go with her? Yes. Oh. If, if in fact, I mean, what we, this is interesting because early on we offered that as a, as a service to women to say, Hey, would you like our trained, you know, Amish or Mennonite lady to go with you to the appointment? And early on we had women say, I don't want to trouble I don't want to be any trouble. I don't want to. I don't want to do that. And mm. then found that they really regretted that they they wanted it but wouldn't ask for it. So one of the things that we changed in our program is saying, you know what? And it, it differs. Depends on the the community. Depends on um, a number of factors in that particular church district. We would ask, do, would you? I mean, well, I just I just had a woman who needed follow up at the local hospital in Cambridge, and it was her first mammogram, baseline. She needed follow up. She wanted somebody to be there with her. Mm -hmm. She just wanted someone in the hospital. And, and I actually went to that appointment, and there were some issues with the scheduling. And she even said to me, "I would have known what to do." And it wasn't right. anything. I mean, it would have been comforting for any woman to have somebody there right. from a rural community that may not have exposure to the hospital. But I just think one of the I mean, one of the key pieces of advice that, that we give healthcare systems and give healthcare providers is that we base success and we have metrics and accreditation standards in, in healthcare that's based on the frequency at which we serve patients, right? Mm -hmm. So especially in cancer, that time between diagnosis and treatment, um, that is absolutely our standards and accreditation procedures that, that are followed to do that. And one of the things that we found with, with some of the Amish women is that they need more time to make decisions about what they want to do. Yeah. They need time mm -hmm. to pray about this. They need time mm -hmm. to talk to their family. They just need time to consider all their options. Mm -hmm. And this can drive hospital systems sometimes crazy yeah. because they they want that time and the the most important thing we want to encourage hospitals to say don't pressure a woman to have something done and we've had that happen we had a horrible case of a woman who felt the hospital is being so over accommodating to yeah. provide follow-up biopsy the same day she had to travel in yeah. and she said later that she felt pressured to do that and we've shared this is a strong statement to make but we had shared with other providers that it would have been better for that Amish woman to die of breast cancer than it would have been for her to live knowing that she had questioned her faith mm. we have to make sure we provide that infrastructure in certain communities of faith that they have time to do what they need to do to make their own decisions. Yeah. And so we do a lot of follow-up with patients in cases like that. Sometimes a woman may want to wait two months before she wants to follow a traditional plan of action for a certain type of care. Um, I guess our role is that we want to make sure that women have the informed information to make their own decision. And so we'll continue that follow-up if needed. But I guess the best advice that we've given any healthcare provider is to, is to make sure that you know, you're, you're giving patients that time to make those decisions. Does that take the form of a provider looking at the patient and saying, I've given you a lot to think about. How much time would you like to think about this? And then I'll make an appointment. We can come back and talk about it more. What does that look like in practice? You know, How do we implement that? I think that, I think maybe I can't speak to what some hospitals have done, but I think that's what the importance is of that, that community advocate or a patient advocate that's in mm -hmm. these hospitals or from the community. I know in our case, if we had a woman who was unsure about what to do, we would have our Amish or Mennonite community health worker follow up in a few weeks and just say, how you doing? And sometimes the questions they ask had nothing to do with breast cancer. It was more, uh, I know we did a training once at a local hospital for eight hours. And the last group that we worked with was a group of discharge nurses. And they mm -hmm. shared with us um, how selfish the Amish men were when they saw their women coming in for care. And they mm. said, you know, 
we, we found the men so difficult to work with, they really don't care about their wives. And I said, well, tell me what happened. And the discharge nurses said, here we are sitting down. We'd see a woman who had, I don't know, C-section or hysterectomy, some gynecological procedure often. And they're sitting down with discharge nurses and asking, are there any questions? And often the discharge nurses says, the men would just look at us and say, when can she, when can she drive in a buggy again? And they thought that was so insensitive. And I was sharing with them, you know, you have to understand that they're in town right now with access to a phone that they don't have when they're at home. And they're trying to make decisions right now about how to care for the family. Do they need to make other arrangements for a driver to get them to where they need to go? Mm -hmm. So in some ways, it's not insensitive. They're just Mm -hmm. being practical to understand what their basic needs are. And we've had that happen. Like a woman might need follow-up and she's not asking any questions. And then the Amish or Mennonite lady follows up and she just wants to know where she can can she park the buggies or a hitching post somewhere? You know, is there a place to put her kids? Where does she eat? Is there a place that, that has water for her? I mean, just basic questions that have nothing to do with cancer care or follow-up care, but these are questions so important to help, I think, normalize that process of going into the hospital. Yeah. I think they're, they're, and again, goes back to what we talked about earlier about how these are not unique to just the Amish. No, I think there's plenty of that same thing. Like give me time. Give me time to people sort this be, out. People should be allowed to process information. Yeah. And whatever that looks like on their time, it's not your time, it's their time. But but for sure in the context of breast cancer, there are Amish women, they'll have mastectomy, they'll have radiation, they'll have chemotherapy, they'll do it all. Yes. They're not opposed to that. We, I mean, it, there's been a couple of rare exceptions where there had been um, an extreme uh, metastatic, you know, breast cancer mm-hmm. case, severe, where a woman at the end, she was actually 37, diagnosed with such a necrotic case of breast wow. cancer. She presented with 13 Horrific. children, 13 children, 37 oh, no. diagnosed. So she did not want to follow treatment initially. Yeah. And I'm not sure if that wouldn't have been a decision that another woman would have made in her shoes. Right. Um, unfortunately, you know, she ended up with such severe pain, she opted for chemotherapy and other type of treatment at the end. But it was all palliative. It was all palliative. palliative. Yeah. But she opted. I mean, she wanted that and wanted to spend the quality of time as she could with her children. Right. Um, but but I would there have been another woman who would have chosen that same path? Absolutely. I mean, it was a very unique case and devastating um, and humbling for us. Um, I think in terms of how we do our work. I mean, to us, I think in in medicine, but especially in public health, I feel is that there are many diseases that we can't prevent and devastating diseases that are out there, but there's nothing to me more tragic than a disease that could have been prevented mm-hmm. or detected early had individuals had access to education, access to healthcare and good quality healthcare to make those informed decisions. And I think that's where this issue of cancer disparities specifically speak to me in communities where we know we have methods and processes that can help save lives and detect cancer early or even prevent it, um, have communities have that information and availability to, to, to detect cancers. So we talk about access to care and frequently for lay people, access can mean, do you have the financial means to get it? Geographic access, that's a, that's a weird concept in the United States because most people have geographic access to some kind of non-self-health care. There's some, something there. It's not like some parts of the world where you have to go 18 hours on foot to get there. But the Amish do face that, right? I mean, they may not have transportation. They may not have an easy or ready, ready way to leave their farm. Right, because exactly. that's a barrier. Right, what are the financial or how do how do they, breast cancer diagnosis is an expensive diagnosis in most cases, Absolutely. right? So, what does that look like for the Amish in terms of how they access care? Not not physically getting in a, a buggy or a van that they've gotten a hold of to get them to the hospital, but actually paying for it, getting those services that they need. What is how do they do that? All right, and from a from a again a 
a cultural standpoint, mm-hmm. m- most Amish communities um, believe strongly in separation of church and state. They don't want a government handout. Yeah. And so the acceptance of government funds or assistance is highly usually discouraged or, or not accepted. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the, the programs that could offer Medicaid or Medicare assistance in some cases may often not be accepted. Now, again, we always offer those options to community members because it's an individual basis, um, but we are respectful of that in some cases. In some communities, there are a type of collective Amish aid, um, a type of, if you would, negotiated insurance policy where different family households, you know, pay in a certain amount of money and is handled more as catastrophic and actually negotiate rates within hospital systems um, for their particular type of Amish aid. Mm -hmm. But that's, and the Mennonite community as well has done an outstanding job of doing that. But that isn't always available in certain cases. And I know the community where we just served with a woman who needed follow-up at the local hospital, just the driver, and she only lived, you know, it's probably like 12 miles as the crow flies, but a 40 minute, you know, car ride because yeah. of how rural she is. It was 50 bucks just for the the transportation wow. to get her to that follow-up appointment and back. And that community doesn't have the luxury of that type of care. And so um, typically the Amish, they, they want to pay their bills. Yeah. Hospital systems have done a great job in providing, you know, massive discounts for yeah. people who are paying by cash or paying in advance. Um, we know still a lot of family doctors that'll still barter for the care that they're provided. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's really notable and, and amazing for physicians and, and primary care docs yeah. to be able to offer that. Um, but in most cases they pay what they need to pay and families will come together, whether they're doing specific benefit dinners or benefit auctions or quilt yeah. raffles to be able to provide that support to pay what they feel is right. Yeah. Um, I think through the years though, what Amish families and communities have felt is that wait a minute, we don't know what we're paying for. I mean, really- Pom- Nobody does. Nobody does, right? And right. Pomerine Hospital was one of the first hospitals in, in Holmes County that serves, again, over half their population that county is Amish. They were the first to provide a um, you know, a, a package plan so that, you know what, if you, um, they were too tired of having mothers coming in, not getting any type of prenatal care mm-hmm. and realizing there's some things we could do here to say, hey, we want to offer this package. You can come one, two, three, 50 times, mm-hmm. but here's the flat rate. Here's what you're paying for, yeah. for this type of service. And they've done that for a number of different things. I think what's what we take for granted, I think those with insurance is that yeah. for many Amish families, they call up and try to negotiate a, a, a cardiac procedure the same way we try to negotiate where we want to buy in the next car. Yeah. You know, uh, Bishop Jake, he, you know, told us that he called several hospitals and said, how much is it going to cost to have this open heart surgery? And he went for the cheapest price because mm-hmm. that's what you do, right? You negotiate that rate. Um, and I think that's, it's wise that hospital healthcare systems are seeing that in more rural areas and providing that service. Well, it goes to a comment, a topic that goes beyond the scope of this and it would take too much time, but I've always felt that we would be a lot more efficient in healthcare if that's how it was done. Uh, this third party payment system that divorces the consumer from the producer is a terrible economic model because it just causes excess. It does it in the defense department. It does it in healthcare. And I know of a local self-insured guy who was going to have a baby and found out there was a disparity of $4,000 between uncomplicated deliveries between two local hospitals yep. just by asking yes. and was able to save four grand because he was going to pay out of pocket, which speaks to the value of local community hospitals and awareness of what's going on in your community too, which I we're agree. losing, right? We are. These we hospital are. corporations are shutting down small community yep. hospitals. They're very sensitive to the needs of those local communities. I agree, especially having local people. I mean, it's the same thing whether we, we talk a lot about having – you know, community members who play lead roles in this project that I think has made it so successful in understanding the needs of communities. But the same would apply for any community, right? Mm-hmm. Having, you know, I, I remember that um, 
the community members growing up where my grandmother lived would say, and again, she was the LPN, but they said that when they would go under a surgical procedure, they would pray that the first person they saw when they opened their eyes and recovered was my grandmother because Aww. she was that caring, nurturing person that they wanted to see. And I mean, I, but that speaks, I think, to a lot of local healthcare systems and communities. And I, the same applies, as you mentioned earlier, about yeah. being able to open your eyes or talk to someone from your own community mm -hmm. about these issues. And, you know, I, I tell you, it's been a learning experience for me when my uncle was diagnosed with a, a rare form and, and stage four aggressive type of stomach cancer, uh, at, treated locally, not here, but locally in Southeast Ohio. I was so angry because he went to the local oncologist who gave him no information at all. Mm -mm. And, you know, I'm very data-driven, right? And I was so angry. And microfish. I called, exactly. <laughs> microfish, right? I'm already researching this cancer. I know his prognosis. I know all this. So I call my mother and I'm just devastated. It's my favorite uncle. And I said, she never told him anything. And my mom said, wait a minute, you're making an assumption that he wanted to know all of that. Yeah. Interesting. And yeah. He, he didn't. You know what he wanted to know? And she told me, you know what his only question was? Hmm. Am I going to lose my hair? Because he had a great head of hair. And you know what the doctor told him on this type of chemotherapy regimen? You're not going to lose your hair. He was so thrilled. Yeah. The man lived five years longer than they even expected him to live yeah. and had a great quality of life. And it really humbled me because I think, again, we make assumptions about what we think other people are going to want. That that's what I would have wanted. Yeah. You know, it is truly, isn't it, that platinum role of treat others just the way they want treated. And the mystery is figuring out sometimes how we can understand it. And the only way we can understand that is by asking. Interview them. Asking I still them. keep thinking of those three things you said at the beginning, Todd Fredericks, those three things that you said that people want in Grow general. Grow old, die everywhere. peacefully in your sleep, see your grandchildren uh, born, and have ice cream on Sunday. And with this discussion too, I was thinking about the, the Amish because I had a lot of questions about their healthcare too, right? Like what their healthcare look like. And I keep going back to that. Everything you say is taking me back to that comment, right? Have the discussion. It doesn't. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, the, by the way, I figured that out near Iran. I realized that I could go anywhere in Iraq and get ice cream. In Iraq? In Iraq. In the middle of the war. If there's one thing the Iraqis liked, it was ice cream. And they would find a way to have ice cream. Like we could be, uh, I remember watching one SEAL mission where they actually stopped in the middle of the night, woke the dude up and the guy had Magnum bars and he, he opened his shop up <laughs> and they walked into the store. They got Magnum bars and went back on the mission. I mean, they have ice cream everywhere. And so I thought, that's what really people are about. They, they, even the Iraqi kid in the midst of war wants to go down and get a, a Magnum bars like a dub bar. You, you, you may be seeing Magnum bars. They're popular overseas, right? They're like a dub. They're really good. They I are. gained a lot of weight on them. Anyway, because I could get them anywhere in Iraq. So, uh, of course, I'm a stress eater, which you can imagine being in combat, you're eating. <laughs> you're like, oh, God, you're blown up. So, but yeah, people that, they want that, right, Sarah? It's normal. That's that's cool. So, so Sarah, or sorry, Melissa, are there specific healthcare issues? Because we've talked a lot about how common the Amish are with everybody else, or just a little bit different in how they're going through life. Are there specific health needs? I mentioned hemophilia. Right. Um, are there any specific health issues that the Amish face uniquely or disproportionately to the rest of the U.S. population? I again, studies are somewhat limited in this area, but I think that. We clearly, you've identified some particular genetic issues that, mm -hmm. that the community faces. And uh, fortunately for many communities, um, there have been some amazing clinics built within the communities by community support to bring in experts who have expertise in particular genetic uh, abnormalities to help communities address these issues. So um, a lot of times in these uh, communities that have such a, you know, um, just a, a very similar gene structure. We're going to see some of that and the homogeneity of the, of the culture and the population. So th those are issues. I think you mentioned too, certain um, uh, farm and uh, 
you know, buggy issues, uh, mm-hmm. safety issues that we see, farm and safety issues that we don't may see in, in more urban societies that are concerned. There's been some amazing efforts that have been done um, in rural areas to help, again, uh, possibly encourage communities to have more type of safety lights and safety reflection tape for buggies, for mm-hmm. accidents, because mm-hmm. we see that as a huge issue. Um, I think, too, that um, there's still more to study, I think, about the diet and lifestyle of the community. We often see an incidence rates of certain diseases, especially cancer. You know, other studies have shown lower incidence rates of certain cancers and diseases that have been attributed often to, you know, uh, the particular diet and active lifestyle, um, which very well would be the case. But we still have more to discover in terms of diabetes or other cancer issues and, and other chronic conditions that we still yet to have to explore. Um, so there, there's still more out there, I think, to learn. Yeah, we talk about buggies. Um, buggies don't go more than about five miles an hour. So if you're ever coming into Amish country, you need to be head on a swivel driving down the road because they are black and they're hard to see. And you can run into one and wipe out 10 people at one time. It's one thing, again, life is slower. So when you come to Amish country, you need to be thinking about how would I be slower? Um, uh, one of our, uh, my wife's f- parents, good friends was killed because he hit an Amish buggy and he died in the car accident. And it, um, yeah, I mean, this stuff, this stuff happens and it's, it is a unique vulnerability because of the way that they live their lives. Uh, so what is a, some, we're getting close to the end on this one, Melissa, what does a doctor, what does an interested person do that says, you know what, that sounds like a pretty, pretty cool place to work. These people sound pretty pretty good. Um, I want to be a provider in an Amish community. What's the advice you give them to prepare for that? Um, Without any, uh, the lay person, not the Mennonite, not the former Amish that becomes Mennonite, goes to medical school. What about the the lay person that says, I just really have a passion for this population. I think I want to live in their communities because it sounds pretty cool. And I know they make great pies and I can probably get that periodically (laughs) because they they, they They literally do like their baking is awesome. It's amazing. Right. So we can get good food in in Amish country. So what would you advise a a practitioner to do to prepare for that? The first thing I would do is to um, head to Amish country, head to Holmes County and visit the Amish and Mennonite Heritage Center, often called the Behalt. Where's that? Um, And it's located um in it's just outside millersburg i'm trying to think of its address as walnut creek mm-hmm. um but it it formerly was called the behalt or um the, now it's the amish and mennonite heritage center what's unique about this and anytime we bring students or other colleagues out uh to our clinics and project this is the first place we go because it it's an amazing mural um that depicts the entire culture and history of the Amish and Plain communities. Um, it's it's a uh, there's a movie, but there's also a guided tour by a member of the community that shares that historical concept of the of the community. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe able to answer questions, but it's very emotional, very moving piece as you go from history to history to understand the culture of the Amish and Plain communities. Um, and I think it's it's difficult to really appreciate. A community and understand it without understanding that historical context. You know? For sure. I mean, you realize a community has been so so tortured and persecuted mm-hmm. for their own beliefs and had to hide out in caves um, to, to worship the way that they felt called to do. It makes sense that there probably some hesitation. It makes sense that, um, I mean, amazing that a culture came here because of William Penn's invitation for, you know, religious freedom uh, to worship as they choose to come here only to still be persecuted when war breaks out and they chose to be conscious objectors and to still feel that persecution in their own community. So I think when you understand that there's 
maybe some historical context about why people may act or behave the way they do, I think that's so critical. I think the other thing too is to um, interact with other healthcare providers or interact with community members. Go to some of the local restaurants. I think the most dangerous thing though is to make assumptions about, you know, it's so easy to get caught up in these tourism areas and tourism has grown so much is to go to the local, you know, hey, I'm going to, to the local Amish restaurant or, mm-hmm. you know, I had some pie or isn't this fun or I talked to someone mm-hmm. Amish and think that you know what there is. I mean, the most dangerous thing ever, I think, the most dangerous thing is talking to anyone who considers himself or herself an expert in any type of community or culture. I think that lack of humility and uh, is dangerous because there's such a diverse group of individuals and, and, and how to serve them. Um, I think too, being able to talk um, to locals who can give you a chance to sit down. Amish bishops love an opportunity in most cases just to talk. Um, if you if you have legitimate questions that you once answered, um, we found the bishops with whom we spoke very eager to want to talk to people. So if you have concerns, I think the other thing too is learning how to accept things that you just don't understand. You know, there's many things, facts. People would often ask me, well, how is it like, how can you go into Amish homes and and there's no electricity and how do you function in a place like this? Or how do, how do you accept the fact that they may have this certain belief set and, and so forth? And my job here is not to judge that, as I know is not the job of any healthcare provider. Um, my job is just to understand that context and how it might relate to how they may perceive healthcare or what options they have for treatment. And if that type of understanding can be addressed, I think it would be possible to work with any community or culture that may be different from your own. Yeah, it, it requires a certain amount of, of um, self-actualization. I hear students, I've told students before, patients don't give you trigger warnings. Right. You know, don't, don't, being mollycoddled through this type of work is a really bad idea because you're going to meet people where they're at and usually in duress. And they're not themselves sometimes. And if you're a person that's easily offended and you can't just sit back and say, yeah, I believe that. I believe my own thing. It's not my job to change your mind. It's my job to take care of them. Exactly. It makes your life a lot easier. It does. And I, I worry sometimes that when people say that, are you really suited to be in medicine? Because it doesn't have to be the Amish. It could be anybody. It is. You know, And you just have to realize they're here because they know that you have the ability to care for their need. It's not your job to be a social justice warrior and change their mental attitude. It's your job to take care of them physically and let them move on and do their life and live. And maybe maybe through the conversation and caring about them, they'll see something in you that you think is important. Yeah, it's kind of a weird thing. I, I don't relate to that well. I don't relate to that arrogance of walking in someplace and deciding it's your role to change someone's life. I agree. I mean, this I is agree. America, right? Life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. It's it your is. life. It's their life. Your okay. job is just to help them. Early on, uh community members sometimes would say to us or other other health providers say, oh, you're the program that um, gets women to take mammograms or you're you're the program that, that provides. And it's actually, that's not what we are. It's totally bizarre. We're we're not, that's not what we are. We're a program that really provides tools and resources to women to take charge of their own health. And we respect whatever decision that is. And, And sometimes it's hard to counter some of the comments made by communities. So for example, when we, ex- we expanded the program statewide in 2011, so we mo- mostly in two, two key areas. And I know that our, when our Mennonite coordinator would literally go door to door in some areas where we had no map, just based on comments and, and ideas and, and uh, other pieces of information. And I remember Linda went to this one community and we knew that death rates were higher from breast cancer. But this one bishop said, I so appreciate what you're doing. I appreciate what you're saying. But in the 50 years that we've been here in this community, there's not been one diagnosis of breast cancer. So we don't really think that we need what you're providing right now. And it's hard to argue that, right? Yeah, I mean, sure. They, they, they've never in 50 years encountered a breast cancer case. Which so seems odd. 
it does. But yes. I mean, it's uh, from what they knew that, you know, it's hard to argue that. Um, and I think sometimes the messaging that we have in medicine is somewhat confusing. We, we remarked in those first few years, we had many mixed messages to Amish communities that I think confused them much more when you look at the way in which we, for mm -hmm. example, you know, we would encourage women, if you have a lump, it's so important that you get this checked out by a healthcare provider. Very important. Don't wait. But then the next slide that we would share with information, great news that over 80% of times that a lump isn't cancerous. And we would have women say, well, gosh, the odds are pretty good. You know what I'm saying? That, that, that there's stay nothing here. wrong. Might as well just stay here. <laughs> Take care of the kids. Or we would tell women that, you know, there's if there's a family history of breast cancer, be so concerned about that, right? If you've had a mother or a relative, that there's this genetic risk. But guess what? One times out of four, breast cancer cases aren't related to any genetics at all. So, I mean, we, we kept providing confusing messages. Even though all of it was true, it was confusing. Um, I know we were trying to talk about how we communicate risk to communities because one of the big concerns we have is that um, many Amish believe that mammograms cause breast cancer due to the radiation. Mm -hmm. And guess what? Radiation does cause cancer, right? So we're trying to find a way to communicate that risk. And we had a young student who went into med school he was waiting to get his, he, he was the diligent young man who waited for his third time to finally get accepted, went back, got his master's degree, spent a summer doing some research with me. And he finally said, I've got it. He, he did all the research to figure out the odds, because there is this rare risk, especially with some genetic anomaly that might enhance the, uh, the risk of getting breast cancer through repeat you know, mammograms, sure. but very rare. Yeah. And so he shared this statistic that the odds of getting breast cancer from a mammogram with repeated usage was like the odds of getting struck by lightning. And I told him that's a horrible analogy because in these rural areas with farms, almost <laughs> everybody knows a cow <laughs> or someone who's been struck by lightning. It's not a good analogy to do. So we've had to learn to take a step back to understand not only what we should be communicating, but how we should be communicating to these communities. Well, and I think the Im important thing too is Never patronize your population because we just, we already talked about, they live their life slower. They have plenty of time to think. They Absolutely. have plenty of time to think about what you've just told them. They have Absolutely. plenty of time to do research. They have plenty of time to really consider what you've just said. And if you give them conflicting information, they're going to run the odds in their head. It's not like they don't know how to do math. Well, I exactly. mean, right. So, I mean, I, I totally get that. And this idea of just throwing facts around and just saying, this is what you should do. Well, how does that, for a population that prides itself on making careful decisions about life choices, I don't think that's going to fly. No. No. I mean, there really is a need for not cultural sense, not the, not the unique cultural um, education, but really a sense of what is it like to be a real anthropologist? How do you look at a society and determine what the societal values are so you now know how to operate properly within that society? That's what we should be teaching them is basic principles of anthropology. And how do you go into a society and avoid major faux pas? I agree. I think that sociological and anthropological perspective is so important. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the early messaging in breast cancer was focused on the individual. Take care of yourself. Take care of yourself. And we realized that in a collectivistic society, you know, the individual comes last. So our messaging really shifted to be here for your family, right? We want you to That's be well priority. to care for your family. That was much more responsive in communities to say, you know, you take care of you, you do you, right? And you take care of yourself and you want to be healthy so you can live your life to its fullest. No, you, you want to be there for your family. You want to mm -hmm. be a good wife, good child, you know, change the messaging to script in a way that's going to make sense to the community. 
Yeah. yeah. It's all about value sets. And I think respecting the value sets that might be different from your own and appreciating that. But again, my as as more as much as I appreciate and respect the individual differences of cultures and communities, as I've grown through the years, what I've seen is that we do have far much more in common than we do different. And there's never been a community I've ever encountered that didn't want one thing more than anything. I, I and again it was my lesson, but they just just ask us. We Stop being so worried about being offensive and what color you're wearing or you mm-hmm. know what handshake you're doing or 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 what direct eye contact. Not that those things aren't important. But at the end of the day, if you are honestly trying mm-hmm. and honestly trying to reach out to truly connect with an individual, I've never had a community say, we didn't appreciate you asking. No, I think that's common, isn't it? It is. It is. So and it's interesting in a way because we talk about the Amish and its difference and the differences that they have. But I think as I've as I've grown older, I have a much more difficult difficult time explaining who they are because I see so much of myself in them. And I think when you connect with a community that way, um, and that would be really unique to say for a car driving, technology loving, computer, you know, driven person. Microfish. Microfish. Microfish loving person. Uh, You know, I, I see much more in common that I have with them than different. Yeah, of course. Well, Good. This is a good discussion, and I know it's it's it, it's a culmination of a very short amount of time for twenty years of labor, Melissa. By the way, before we go, uh, before I finish off here, Sarah and Pie and stuff. What about your book? Yes. Uh, can ever can a normal person buy your book? Yes, a normal person. You're going to send me the link to it. Absolutely. Now tell me about the book. Well, it, it, real quickly. Obviously, we talked to, uh, earlier on the show. I'm about only looking because I have this mandatory training. Yeah, I know. To get, I you know, it's sure terrible. Because um, I like this conversation, I wish I could miss the mandatory training. I'll make this quick, but um, but we mentioned early on about all the new the docudramas and reality oh, fake yeah. TV shows yeah. that went out, and and for us on the project, we realized through the years as tech as tourism continued to thrive. And these shows continue to be far more pervasive. And, and I mean, I think at one point there were over two dozen different Amish related reality shows mm-hmm. from Amish ghost stories to Amish mafia, mm-hmm. uh, crazy stuff. And, oh, and it's just <laughs> disgusting. We, isn't it? <laughs> and we would, I would go to conferences and present our research and people honestly believe those shows. So, um, and I, I call and these are educated, educated people, people, people with PhD, which reinforces one of my rules, which is mm-hmm. you'll never find greater confirmation bias than on a university campus. I, I, I believe that. People that get degrees don't. tend to think they know a lot of things. Well, the other thing too, back to that, is <laughs> yeah. that anecdotally speaking, I found the most the most prejudiced people around Amish communities were those going. who lived right in the right in the, the boundary of the community because they, they thought they knew. Yeah. And they were the ones most likely to say negative comments about the community to have to follow those stereotypes. Those just who lived right on the perimeter, right? Mm-hmm. And so anyway, um as time went on, we would hear Amish families say, especially in these large tourism areas of Holmes County, that I called it the Disneyland effect, where people would, you know, get in these country roads and get out of their cars, walk up into these families' homes and their gardens and take photos of them like it's some Epcot Center show that's yeah. going to end at nine o'clock at night. We we saw actual well-documented PBS shows that showed Amish families that had not getting, given consent for their photograph and videos to be taken. So I had this crazy idea of what if we could take this weapon that's been used against them, this camera, and use it as an opportunity for them to show a window into their own world. There's plenty of books and photography books about the Amish, but there's never been a book that's been written and directed directly by the community. So 
Um, we found a photographer who is unbelievably talented, Talitha Taro from Albuquerque, New Mexico, um, and asked her, we have an odd ask, uh, but would you give up all the rights to these photos and, and give them to the nonprofit for the community? And we give you unprecedented access uh, to go into the homes of families to document their lives. And she agreed. Um, and so we went into dozens of homes um, and even in some of the most conservative Amish communities um, agreed to participate. But and it was one of the most terrifying things I'd ever done because I knew that it had taken 20 years to establish trust. Yep. And I was praying to God that this was the right decision to make. But they owned it from the beginning. So thousands of photos were taken. The families decided what photos they wanted to share. As a group, they down selected to 50, but then they shared the stories behind those photos. Um, some of them interviewed. I mean, a lot of them said, I'm not a writer, I'm a storyteller. You know, they, they don't write in their their main language. So they were interviewed. Um, often they would change the script. Um, but it was their book from start to finish. And the name of the, the book is Life Through Their Lens. And you can access the book, uh, lifethroughtheirlens.com. Amazon. Uh, and it's available on Amazon. Life uh, Through Their Lens. Life Through Their Lens. Uh, if you order directly from us, all 100% of the proceeds go directly back to serving these healthcare programs that we're providing in the community. Is, that, is there a description of those on the website? Uh, the healthcare communities it supports? Uh, well, the healthcare programs that we're talking about, the women's health programs okay. that we're talking, the clinics and the services yeah. in the community, all of that, those dollars go back to serve those programs. So, so. I'm putting the show notes that way people can, can, if they feel compelled, they can support the community through your book, Absolutely. which I've not seen a copy of. I need to change that. Yeah. Why don't you have a copy of it here so I can look at I, it I, well, and I can, just remark about how awesome it is. That's so kind of you to say. I, I, I was remiss in bringing that. Yes, today. you were. I apologize. <laughs> I will make sure that- You assume that, something. She actually has I, a copy so of it on terrible. microfiche. I, 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 she has it on microfiche. That's right. We have to look at it like this. I know. <laughs> I have to keep going back to that. I know. I should. That's what. That should be my item in my office. Yeah. A microfish machine. Well, yes. V. I still have it, of course. You should bring it in. Oh, that's amazing. Then you can put the baby Yoda on top of it. I can do that because <laughs> if you smell cat, dead cat, dead burning cat, cat going by, I think an old librarian had it. You know, in a basement or something. It's terrible. So awful. It was oh, great memories. But I'm so grateful. I I hope this provides some benefits or of course or it understanding does. to to others. But um, and I also welcome anyone interested to come out to one of our clinics or come out to one of our events or programs because we do a lot in the community and um it's a rare opportunity to to get to see the other side i think of the window looking out i think so too it's it's cool i'm gonna go up there in fact i'll tell you i'll die myself out i the amish our amish community came and did christmas caroling and of course i have access to a lot of audiovisual equipment and so i took a uh, high quality stereo recorder out and recorded them and I have to make a trip out to the farm to say, look, I recorded your caroling. I am not giving it to anybody because it was beautiful, but I'd really like to use it as part of this podcast. Can I do that? So, I mean, people need to understand that. I mean, I'm sensitive enough to that. I would never use that content without getting express permission from them. Right. Because it's, you just realize that it is an intrusion. Mm -hmm. it they, is. Now, they happen to be caroling at my my mother-in-law's front porch. So the fact that the sound came in, I feel like I was justified in recording it. They, <laughs> right. You guys gave it to me. Right. But before I would put it up on iTunes, I would ask your permission. Yeah. yeah you got to make sure you're doing that. You don't, you, you, the very bad faux pas to take your brand new, you know, Canon Mark III, you know, Canon 5D Mark IV and run up to a person and say, can I take your picture or selfie? It'd be really bad. Don't do that. I agree. Right. I agree. Sarah Atkins, what do you, or your iPhone 11 or whatever it is. Don't take a selfie with the Amish people. I don't even take a selfie with myself. Yeah. Who wants to? I'm not, whatever. Thank you. What, do you have any questions for no. Melissa? It was wonderful. I appreciate it. Well, thank you so much. Hi, right, what do you think? 
Thank you so much for everything. You're good with it? Nothing? It was really amazing. You were like a little window through like the whole well, Amish so community. Okay. I, I never me. dreamt thank it. You. Well, thank you. I never dreamt in a conversation we were talking about Breaking Bad, Microfish. Yeah, and the Amish. <laughs> uh, we did talk about the mafia today, just not the Amish mafia, right? Well, no. And, and what I think would be really smart for people to do if they're listening to this is to buy the book, Life Through Their Lens. And then listen to this podcast as you flip through those pictures and think about what we've talked about and that community. And make a trip to Holmes County or to um, – I think Holmes is better for, for people who want to go. There's more access to – I haven't been a geographer for years, so I don't know if there's a holiday in there. I just know that that in Holmes, you can stay in a holiday and you can go to Sugar Creek and you can go to Kidron and you, you, can. Can, go, you can go see Lehman's General Store – and you can go drive. Our book is available at Layman's too. Of course Actually, it is. They, they, uh, they're very supportive. But you also can go to the Amish and Mennonite Heritage Center. And you can go to the Amish and Heritage Center. I highly recommend. Yeah, and, and see some really pretty parts of Ohio. At the same time, you're seeing how these beautiful farms and furniture furniture factories and stuff where people are doing wonderful things. I, agree. I think. Yeah. Good? We covered it all? Thank you, Pi. Thank you, Sarah, for showing up because it, it helped a lot. It did. <laughs> It does. I'm always here for entertainment value. Microfiche. Microfiche. Gonna, I know. And Melissa, I can't That's thank- all I bring. That's all I bring. <laughs> uh, Melissa, I can't thank you enough for sharing your time. It went way over what I thought it was. And oh, this wow. third segment's much longer than I anticipated, but we're gonna I'm just gonna cut it the same way. It'll be forty some odd minutes long and it'll be awesome. Well thank you, Dr. Fredericks. I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, this was great. Yeah, it's awesome. And I hope people find a great deal of enjoyment. Of course, as always, if you find something that you th- you liked about this and you know, um, uh, send us an email on, on Gmail and we'll we'll respond and like it and share it and let people know that you appreciate what we do. So with that, I will close out. Thank you for joining us on Mutations. Mutations is the weekly podcast of all things medicine and science as part of the media and medicine family of medical storytelling. The opinions and comments expressed on Rotations do not reflect the official or unofficial positions of the Ohio University, the Ohio University Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, or the Scripps College of Communications. Guests on Rotations are interviewed in an unopposed fashion so their ideas and opinions can be freely expressed. This episode of Rotations was produced by Todd Fredericks. Rotations is co-hosted by a league of champions of all things medical and a few people we sometimes pull off the street. Rotations is copyrighted, and while we welcome citations, tweets, Facebook likes, and other endorsements via word of mouth and social media, we reserve the right to all content. You may use Rotations content under the provisions of Creative Commons, but you cannot alter or edit the content in any manner without express permission of the content creators. You must cite Rotations as the source of any content derived from the podcast. We welcome any comments, and you can contact us by tweeting us at Medical Cinema for Todd, at Prof Plow for Brian. Nisarg Bakshi for Nisarg Bakshi and at Rotations PCAST or by visiting mediaandmedicine.com slash rotations. Check us out on Facebook at Media and Medicine. And finally, from me, Todd Fredericks, you can also send me a message through my Facebook page at TR Fredericks. Please, I have a sense of feelings, so embrace your inner non-hater. <laughs>